So we've been doing a lot of hiking as a family since we got here, which is great because it's everywhere around us and it's free and I'm cheap and so I like free stuff. Um, but it's, it's great because there's just nothing more fun than being able to let your kids out and let them just kind of go wild in nature, especially when you have somebody like Clay. Um, and every stick becomes a sword and every piece of moss because becomes something to play with usually in the form of throwing it at your sisters. Um, but, you know, it's great. It's fun, right? Um, and I, you know, I, I love being out, but you have to be a good guide when you're out with kids. And while I am usually a fairly directionally adept individual, um, there have been a couple times where we have kind of gotten turned around in the forest and had to kind of figure out where we're going. And I had one of those happen just a couple of weeks ago, um, shortly after Quinn was born. Um, I took the kids out. James Darnell had actually taken me out to Gallon Todd um, a few weeks back, and we had gone and seen this amazing waterfall. I love this thing. It is really, really cool looking, and evidently it dries up in the summertime, so I wanted to get out and see it. But I, I, it's not a small set of falls. I mean, this is probably, I don't know, James, am I, am I exaggerating when I say it's probably a 50-foot drop? Probably about that? Okay, I mean, it's, it's, it's sizable. I like it, okay? And it's just this little narrow creek that just spills over in these huge falls on its way out into Brentwood Bay. And, but the way that we went is we went down to the waterfront and then came back up toward the falls. And I'm thinking about taking my three- and four-year-old on this hike, and I'm like, uh, no. Uh, so instead, of, we were gonna, I decided to work backward from the loop that he and I did and, and go, go the other way so that we could come over the top of the hill and kind of go down and see it and then take the shorter hike back up. And we do this thing called geocaching that is a lot of fun, and I have already started infecting other families with it. Uh, and if you don't know what it is, in essence, think of it as like a high-tech treasure hunt, okay? People are hiding containers and canisters of stuff all over the world. There's like two million of them worldwide now, including in Antarctica and the International Space Station, and they dropped one off the Mars rover recently. So um, nobody's found that one yet. <laughs> It's definitely a five difficulty, five terrain. Okay, I mean, it's, it, yeah, but it, anyway, but they're everywhere. And so you use your GPS and you use the clues to find them, right? And so we're, we're going to pick one up on our way because it's in there. And there's this huge hedge of blackberries in between us and where, you know, my iPhone app says that this thing is. And so we have to start kind of bushwhacking and moving around. And so we kind of head around this hill and over some logs and through some terrain and and, and we're moving there, and, and I've got Molly, you know, by the hand so that she can get through the brush behind me. And Clay, of course, is using the stick like a machete now instead of a sword. And, you know, Reagan's bringing up the rear, asking awesome questions like, so, Dad, if we meet a bear, what do we do? You know, and I'm just like, whatever. You know, it was just, there's a lot of us. He'll be scared. You know, I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, but, so we get out there, but... And we find it, but then when we find it, we've, got, we've gone so out of a straight line. Ask me if I've got a map of Gallon Todd with me right now. Ask me if I've got signal reception in order to get a map of Gallon Todd right now. Nope. So I'm going, and the path is this way. Yeah, it's this way. And we start, you know, that way. Um, and it turns out I'm right. You know, I'm, I'm right. The trail is that way. Problem is, is that we got a lot farther down into the brush than I thought we did. So I'm thinking that we're going to head this way. We're going to hit the main trail and there's a little bridge we cross and then we 
take this little trail that comes off on the other side of the bridge and go down to the falls. We come out at the falls on the wrong side of the trail. So, yeah, James is going, oh, no, you know, yeah, because he's seen what this is, and, we're like, and I'm like, oh, children. Because, I mean, literally from the other side, it's like it's brush, 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 brush. Oh, hi, falls. And we back off this thing, and we end up having to, like, trudge uphill, like, basically, like, skirting the, the creek all the way up until we can find the, the bridge and go over and come down. And by this time, the conversation has unilaterally changed to one question from my kids. When can we go home? And one answer from dad, I got to find the trail first. You know, and we get up and over and down and we see the falls. But at this time, it's kind of lost as magic. I'm a little bit more like Chevy Chase in vacation at the Grand Canyon. He was kind of like, well, here we are. Great. Okay, let's go. And it just, that's, that's, it just kind of lost all the magic, right? And, uh. And it just reminded me, once again, of, of an adage that I've heard. I've heard it from my father. I've heard it from, you know, numerous church leaders. I've heard it a lot. But just the fact that everybody ends up somewhere, very, very few people end up somewhere on purpose. Whether we're talking about hiking or whether we're talking about life, that seems to happen more than we think. And especially especially when we consider spiritual formation into the image of Jesus Christ. We want to know God's will for our lives. We want to have direction and destination, and yet so often it kind of seems like we're meandering through the bush, right? And, and, and no real clear path or plan of traveling. And no concept sometimes even of the ultimate destination of, of what God wants us to end up being like and looking like and where he wants to take us. And I think it is for this reason that God has given us the spiritual discipline of guidance. See, guidance frees me from the uncertainty that tends to paralyze me in my spiritual decision-making and also that tendency that we have to rush headlong without really considering where God is leading us. And I think it takes those things and it replaces it with a freedom to pursue the intimate direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we are working to be in a relationship with Christ and as we're working to become his reflection. That's why God has given us the discipline of guidance. And I think it's interesting to think about discipline as a guidance. Huh? Or what I was saying, guidance as a discipline. Thank you. Is it, she edits me during the week. She edits me on Sunday. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, that, I mean, amen. All right, love it. All right, it's good. I need it, okay? I need it more than you know. Um, I mean, it, it sounds simple, I guess, but it's not. It's anything but sometimes, this idea of, of guidance. In fact, I think there's probably no discipline that God has given us that is more difficult sometimes to define or practice than the discipline of guidance. Not, not because it is hard to do, more like it is hard to wrap my mind around what it is and how it works. And yet I think we would say that discerning God's will is a very big deal to us. And while I don't, wanna, I don't think that you can cover in any one sermon exactly the fullness of seeking God's will and being guided by Him, I, I do want to highlight a few things about guidance and practicing it as a discipline that I think are very, very important first thing I want to point out for us is simply this. 
I think we spend most of our time looking at guidance as a question seeking an answer. God, I want to know what I need to do in this situation. Please answer me. And that's not wrong. The problem is I think it kind of puts the cart before the horse. We come asking a question and expect an answer, and we think that that's a discipline. But that's not, the discipline is not in asking the question. The discipline, as God looks at it, God seems to look at guidance as an idea of almost cultivating my environment, cultivating myself so that I am able to listen, so that then when the questions come, I am already in step with God, and I am already listening for his answer. So many times we don't take the time to actually cultivate that environment of listening until we're actually faced with the question. And then we try to seek guidance. And I think when God talks about guidance, God talks about it in terms of rhythm. God talks about it in terms of of an environment that we create. If you look at the early church in Acts, they don't seem to spend near as much time asking for directions as to where the church should or ought to be going as they do cultivating this environment of worship and prayer and the teaching of Scripture and being intimately involved in each other's lives. And that made them sensitive to the identity that Christ was forming in them. And then the decisions and the choices that they made came out of that overarching identity and mindset. I think that's what God looks at when he's looking at guidance as a discipline is how are we creating an environment where we're ready to listen? And not just individually, but communally, as a church, as a body of believers. How are we creating an environment where we're ready to listen? I think we become exceptionally attached to the idea of individual spiritual guidance. And yet most of the examples we have in the Word seem to show that God's vision of guidance by the Holy Spirit is something that happens primarily in the context of the community of faith. That's a real interesting shift if you think about it, okay? In our reading this morning from Ephesians 4, we see this really great picture of unity in the body of Christ. But we also see Paul painting this ideal picture of a group of disciples that is engaged in the discipline of guidance. Listen to the words that he uses. Listen to the words to the disciples in Ephesus. You were called to travel on the same road in the same direction, so stay together, both inwardly and outwardly. He has handed out the gifts to you of apostle and prophet and evangelist and pastor teacher to train Christians in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church, until we are all moving rhythmically and easily with one another. Fully developed within, fully developed without, fully alive like Christ. We take our lead from Christ, who is the head, and he is the source of everything that we do. He is the one that keeps us in step with himself. He is the one that keeps us in step with one another. See, the picture that Paul paints is one of us all journeying together, each member of the body engaged in helping the others out on the journey. All of us moving in the direction of Christ together. That is the discipline of guidance in the community of the church. And yet, while our Christian bookstores are packed with books on discerning God's will for the individual life, there is little, very, very little, maybe even nothing being said right now about how to exist as a community that is sensitive to the guidance of the Spirit. And I think 
that's probably just, I mean, part of it, I think, is a preoccupation that comes with being so rooted in our culture and its emphasis on individualism. But I need you to realize, church, that God lays out a paradigm where our individual guidance is subordinate to communal guidance. Actually, even further than that, where our individual guidance isn't even fully realized unless we are engaging in a community of guidance. If you think of the example of, of, of Paul and Barnabas being called out for ministry, and, I, and, and again, I don't know exactly how that works in Acts 13, but you look at this community in Antioch, and they are, they are engaged. They didn't come with a problem seeking an answer. They didn't come saying, how will we get the gospel message out to the Gentiles? And, and we're going to now we are going to seek and find that answer. Instead, they are coming together and they're creating this environment of worship. And they're creating this environment of prayer. And they're creating this environment where they, they fast and they really, really are seeking the presence of God. And out of that comes this, this motion, this movement of bringing the gospel to areas that have not seen it yet. And you see this individual... You know, it's, it's, not even that, it's not even that Paul and Barnabas are like, hey, that's me. You know, I mean, they, they're probably getting inklings of, hey, maybe we're talking about me. But it's getting verified out of the entire body of Antioch. Is, it's, not just, it's not just that, we, that we're feeling called by God to do this. We're feeling called to say, you guys, this is your thing. This is what God is calling you to do. It's out of this communal guidance of the Holy Spirit that individual guidance into God's will gets clarity. I think that's a really, really important example for us to think about when we think about being guided by God's will because so often we ask these questions and seek these answers all by ourselves. Or maybe we ask other people for information about it, but it's after we've already pretty much wrestled with it and made our decision and now we're just looking for verification. Have we invited other people into our lives? Have we created, have we invested ourselves in other people's lives to the point where we've created a community where that seeking of God's will is a natural thing that we're cultivating, an environment that we're creating? And then when those decisions come, we're already a group that listens to God's Spirit. Do you see that shift in thinking? It's very countercultural for us. It's very different for us. But I think it's vital. If you, look in, if you look in Scripture, from the time of Israel's calling out from Egypt, God wanted them to be led by His intimate, immediate presence. This pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that literally goes before them, and they walk in its steps, and when it goes, they go, and when it stops, they know it's time to camp, right? And God wants to speak directly to them. But from the very beginning, even in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, the people say, please don't let God speak directly to us. We're going to die. And so they say, you know, I don't know if it's that we're really, really going to die or it's just, I just can't handle it, right? And so they ask Moses, please speak for us to God and then, and then tell us what God says. And so Moses becomes the first mediator between people and God's guidance for them. And Israel goes through these stages of judges and kings and prophets, and, and it's like each step gets a little bit further removed from this intimate guidance that God intended his presence to have with Israel. But then with the triumph of Jesus, now the Holy Spirit is opened up again to become the primary tool for guidance among God's people again. 
And you see in Acts the Spirit draw the church together into a culture of community that's sensitive to guidance directly from God's presence again. You look in Acts 2 and 4 and the believers are of one heart and mind. It's this culture that bolsters the message of the apostles early on. It diffuses the racial tensions of the Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews in Acts 7. It raises Paul and Barnabas up like we talked about for their, for their tasks in Acts 13. And it helps the church act really decisively and very counterculturally in how they bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 15. Especially for our heritage, I think, in the Restoration Movement that has placed such a great importance on the book of Acts as a pattern for how the church should operate. And yet, I think a lot of times we haven't given near enough emphasis to this particular idea of the Spirit guiding the corporate church. We haven't really invested in that. We haven't tried to pattern ourselves after that very much. So how do we engage in the discipline of guidance together? I think it starts with invitation. If you look in Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 through 20, Jesus tells the disciples this. If two of you on earth agree about anything you, a- anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. It is really, really easy to take the first part of this this little verse and think that somehow this is kind of a Jesus vending machine passage for lack of, you know, I'm being crude, but just, you know, the, the idea that, that we use corporate prayer to get results. Okay. And that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is emphasizing is the fact that his presence is the key to guidance whether it is people seeking his will, whether it is is correcting people in error, whether it is accomplishing the growth of the church, whether it's being able to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, whatever it is, his presence is the key. And he says, so where two or three of you are gathered, I am among you. So when you invite me in and you ask in my name, not saying I really, really want this, so in Jesus' name, but really when my name is being glorified among you because I am there and it drives you to ask for things or to seek things or to go forward in things, then you can be confident of my guidance. And yet I don't know how intentionally we invite the presence of Jesus and his advocate, the Holy Spirit, into our times together to see him and his resurrection power as literally being among us and in between us. One of the scariest verses for me is in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. And he says, behold, look at me. I am standing at your door and I'm knocking. If you hear me call, open the door and I will come in and I will sit down with you. And I've mostly heard this as an evangelistic reading, right? It's, you know, it's the, it's the heart of the person out in the world and Jesus is, you know, knocking on there. That's not what he's doing, guys. That's, that's not what this verse is about. Jesus is knocking on the door of a church that thinks that they're on the road to glory and does not realize that they are not seeking the guidance. And he's knocking on the door saying, um, excuse me, did you forget to invite the host to his own party? And yet, I think it's kind of an afterthought for us to invite Jesus in. How often do we truly spend time and invite the presence of Christ into our worship? I know Daniel has, has, has made that 
an emphasis just about every single time that we get together. The first thing that we do is try and in, is, is ask Christ and his spirit to be among us. But it's not for him to invite it in, <laughs> right? It's not like, you know, he says some magic words as worship leader that week, you know, or, or Marlene or whoever it is that's doing it says it, and now the presence of Christ is among us. We must invite him in. We must invite his presence. How often are we doing that in our small groups or in our classes, into our business meetings, into our leadership meetings, into our staff sessions, in, in whatever it is that we're doing as a church? Is it just a cursory thing that we bookend our work with just so that we cover our bases? Or is that invitation our highest priority, whatever it is that we're doing? See, I, I think that alone might change everything when it comes to seeking God's guidance. If we were less interested in seeking his answers and we were more interested in inviting his presence into our lives to be among us. But I also think that we need to realize that guidance doesn't happen on its own. Guidance, from what we see in Scripture, is always attached to other spiritual disciplines. We talked this morning in class about Jesus in the garden and you think about Jesus and how he takes, he takes this corporate group of guys. You know, I mean, even, even though the disciples don't really pull their weight, it's still a group effort, right? Uh, and, he, and he takes them out for prayer so that he can really, really submit his will to God's guidance and go to the cross. You know, I think of, I think of Jesus spending the whole night in solitude and prayer in Mark before he even selects the disciples, Right? Paul and Barnabas get raised up as, as, as this service of the church in Antioch, corporately engaged in prayer and worship and fasting together. Think about it. How often do we waffle and we waver in the decisions that we make for God or we say cursory prayers and then make split-second decisions about our walk with Christ or his direction for us? What if we called people together for times of worship and prayer before we started making decisions. What if we called that someone or a few someones that we know, that we trust in the body, to fast with us when we need to consider something and then have them offer the counsel that they have received from God before we start making our decisions? I mean, think about it. If we invited other people to speak in the Spirit with us as a part, you know, rooted in Scripture, rooted in where God wants us, you know, rooted in that community, but, but not forsaking one of the greatest resources that He's got for us, which is each other. When we were seeking to be guided by God, how much more confident would we be that we were walking in step with God and with each other if we invited each other into those kind of relationships? And I mean, that's just scratching the surface. We have such a wealth of community resources here at Shelburne. We have accountability relationships. We have small groups. We have Bible classes. We have so much more. I think of the women's mentoring relationships that Barb and the others have cultivated. And, and the fruit that they're seeing from that because they are willing to pursue intentional relationship together. They go together and they grow together as a result because they've decided to move in step with one another. That's... Ephesians 4, guidance. That's that discipline at work. It's those mutual Christ-centered relationships that bring guidance to life in the church community when we're all engaging in them. And when I look at Paul's picture in Ephesians, it involves everybody. 
There is no one person in Ephesus, and there's no one person here who possessed everything that they needed to walk in step with God's Spirit on their own. Think about that. Even the most mature needed the viewpoints and the help of the other people. Even the most seemingly insignificant person had something to contribute. Nobody could hear the whole counsel of God in isolation. And so they were all called to grow up together into Christ. Now this is kind of a, this is a, this is a foreign and somewhat scary idea for us. Because I think we know more about what we don't want this to look like than what we do. People will use guidance with poor motives. And it can be terrible. Sometimes people will, I mean, I'm not even going to worry about the poor motives. I'm saying even when we try to use it with good motives, sometimes it can turn out terribly. I've seen it used as a power play. And I, maybe we fear exactly that, that, that somehow we're coming, on, uh, you know, we're coming in and under somebody's authority and letting them have power over us, okay? I've seen that happen, and I know that it's a problem, but, but that's not what God's talking about here. Guidance, though, that's not centered in Christ can go terribly wrong. It can be used to manipulate or control. It can be devoid of grace. It can become legalistic. Or it can fail even to take into account the diversity of the body and its gifts and try and homogenize us all into the same conformed little box. It is not the way of Christ to break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, but misguided attempts at guidance can do just that. It can crush the hope and snuff out the weak instead of raising them up. So how, how do we engage in discipline as a community of guidance and avoid all these pitfalls and actually be able to trust each other with this? I think the answer lies in something that my kids and I experienced last week. We have a neighbor out on Oldfield that recently brought his sheep herd out to pasture for the springtime, including all of the little lambs, you know, the newborns, which are awesome. I... I you know, that's not something that I've grown up a lot with in Colorado, in Denver, in the middle of the city, is, you know, seeing, you know, sheep out in the pasture right next to my house, especially when they're like this big. Um, and, and my kids thought it was great. So we, we hiked over and one afternoon and, and saw them all playing around. And while we were there, my neighbor comes out because it's, you know, getting about toward time to bring them up into the barn for dinner time. And uh, he brings out his border collie with him. And uh, my neighbor, Reg, says, hey, would you like to see Jock work the sheep a little bit? And we said, um, yeah, sure, of course, because I've never seen anything like this before in my life. So he gives a whistle, and Jock jumps this fence and runs in there, and then he goes in through the gate um, after him. And to clarify, I mean, like, Reg has been, he told me he's been on this property his whole life. His dad's been on the property. His grandfather's been on the property, and they've been shepherding. So I, I take it he knows what he's doing a little. And I watched Jock get in there, and I don't know if you've ever seen a Border Collie do this, but he gets in around him, and he kind of, he gets down like this, okay? He's just, he's down in the grass, right? His ears are up, his tail is up, but he's just, he's just in the grass. And he is just so focused, right? And I watch them, and they move the sheep from one end to the other. They split them into two groups. They split them into three groups. They get the lambs away from the, I mean, they're doing all this stuff that's really, it's really complex, you know, and then finally bring them all back together and, and get them back up. But I noticed something really amazing. Jock spent absolutely no time looking at the sheep, none. Like even these little cute lambs that are coming up and sniffing him, like, you're an odd-looking sheep, what are you? You know, I mean, he just ignored them completely. 
And his whole time, he's, when he's not actually moving and working, he is in that crouch with his ears up and his tail up and his eyes completely fixed on Reg. And as Reg moved, he would move. And as Reg signaled, he would go and then immediately come back to that ready position. And I mean, in everything, he had, he had eyes for one person, just the shepherd. Just the shepherd. And when I think about us in guidance, when I think about us in, 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 in guiding one another and engaging in that with one another, I think we get tangled up when we're trying to lead or when we're just trying to help somebody. It comes when we are trying to make guidance happen for people. We fall into the trap of focusing on the movement of the sheep rather than the movement of the shepherd. We trade out discipleship to the Lord for meeting people's needs. We trade God's timetable for a human one. We get out of step with the master and our efforts start to become useless or even counterproductive. See, to receive guidance requires humility and it requires us to be willing to fix our eyes on the shepherd. But to offer guidance requires even more humility to keep our focus really tightly on our good shepherd and let what we give to others only be an outpouring of that relationship rather than taking matters into our own hands. If we cultivate that humility of spirit along with that regular engagement in each other's lives, then I think we can finally start developing the trust and the honesty required for godly guidance to come forth and flourish in our lives together. You know, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. I, church, I, I really, really believe that God has a corporate vision for us, for who he's calling us to be as a collection of individuals, and that, and that how we live and move in our lives as individual Christians comes out of that greater where is God guiding us as a church. And I know he's using leaders here, ministers, deacons, elders to work that out, and he's revealing that direction to us as we go. But I want us to hold fast to this picture that Paul paints for us in Ephesians 4. God is revealing his map markers through all of us together as a body. As we cultivate that environment of sensitivity to the leading of his spirit. And that's a joy and a responsibility that each of you are a part of. You may not have realized that before right now but you are. And we all have the opportunity to invite Jesus' presence among us for his guidance. We go together, we grow together. That's really the message of guidance. This is the heart of the community that amazed all of first century Palestine where the believers were all of one heart and mind. The spirit-filled community, it is available to us today. The question is, are we willing to see ourselves as part of something bigger? Are we willing to trust each other in that way? Am I willing to let you into those decisions, into those questions in my life or not? Are we willing to journey into the fullness of Christ together? If we are, I don't think there's any limit to what God is able and willing to do with us as a church. It's all about the will, right? It's all about becoming willing, becoming sensitive together. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your spirit.
Thank you for your spirit of grace that works like fuel for life, that lets us go and move and be. But God, you haven't just given us grace individually. You have given us grace as a body. And each one of us is a part of it, God. And, and, and any time we, we disconnect our movements from the whole body, um, Lord, we, we hurt ourselves and we limit the fullness of what could be happening with those around us as well. And I, I just pray you'll give us a vision for that. For guidance is a communal discipline where together we are about seeking your will. Where we don't let, where we don't let ourselves get out ahead of the body but all together we are seeking you. And Lord, I, I believe your promise that says that when you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. I believe that when we seek you, you will be found. And your will will be found. And so I pray that you help us as we learn to trust each other, as we learn to invite more of that community into our lives, as we seek to go together, as we seek to grow together, as we seek to become a church that is even more united in your vision. Give us a lot of humility. Give us a lot of, of, of openness. Give us, give us a lot of willingness, Lord, to go there. We love you. In your most precious son's name we pray. Amen.